0: If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can find it in a basket underneath the pew in front of you. Please feel free to take that Bible home with you as our gift to you if you don't have one. Listen as I read the Lord's Word to us in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would minister to us through your word. Thank you that by your grace so many could sing in truth that it is well with their souls. That their, their soul's eternal security is safe in Christ. Thank you that that is gloriously true by your saving grace through your son for so many in this room. I'll make it true of more this morning. Lord, we pray that you would use your word to, to loosen our grip on the world. Help us not to love the world or the things that are in the world. Make us to be a people who seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and who lay up treasures in heaven first and foremost rather than on earth. Cause your word to help us to make progress and to seek what is good and life-giving rather than what will destroy us. We pray that in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. In the fall of 1929, uh, the American stock market plunged, it crashed, plunging America into the Great Depression and leaving uh, many people uh, having lost all that they had before that. In August of 2005, Hurricane Katrina, one of the deadliest hurricanes in U.S. history, struck, I mean, pummeled the Gulf coastline in southeastern United States, uh, resulting in about 2,000 deaths, millions left homeless, and an estimated $161 billion in damages. Uh, From the 20-year period, from about the year 2000 to 2019, it's estimated that 51 million people in the U.S. alone have died. The U.S. alone each one of them leaving behind their money, their bank accounts, their clothes, their home, their relationships. Each of us could probably name uh, professional athletes or famous actors or multimillionaires who have achieved everything that you think this world could offer and then... Ended up committing suicide, having come to the end of themselves feeling absolutely empty and in despair without hope and without God in the world. Uh, In our text today, Jesus is going to directly address our relationship, brothers and sisters, to earthly things, our relationship to this world. He's getting nitty-gritty at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, and the big idea of our text is that Jesus calls his disciples to live with single minded and undivided devotion to his kingdom and not to earthly things. The, the big idea of our text today, verses 19 to 24, is that Jesus is calling us, all of us, as his disciples, to live with single minded and undivided devotion to him and to his kingdom. I want to reorient us to a few things just by way of the surrounding context of our text uh, today. The first is that the Sermon on the Mount is meant to highlight the authority of Jesus as a a key thread throughout the sermon. It's it's very obvious in the way Jesus speaks that he's not speaking like an average rabbi or teacher of the law in his day. Uh, What is happening here is that The divine lawgiver has showed up. He is on the scene. And what he says is true binding and good for his disciples. Matthew, as a a helpful writer, is going to draw us as the readers uh, to notice this in a very uh, striking and direct way at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to give a short summary at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to say, the crowds were astonished at him and at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes and their Pharisees. So as we read our text today, we need to read with that in mind, that we are to view Jesus' teaching as absolutely authoritative over our lives as the divine lawgiver. Second, we must remember the heavy emphasis on God as our heavenly Father. This is a significant theme in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's especially dominant in chapter 6. In chapter 6, you have God referred to as Father 12 times compared to 3 times in chapter 5 and 2 times in chapter 7. See, Christ is wanting to draw the disciples and our attention to thinking of God as our Father and us as his children. Uh, the third thing I'd note by way of context is that in chapter 6, Jesus is now transitioning from teaching his disciples about their private, inward life of devotion to the Lord. Uh, Giving in secret, praying in secret, fasting in secret is the repeated refrain throughout verses 1 to 18. He's transitioning from that to now talking about, at a more macro scale, about the, the overarching orientation of our lives as disciples under his kingdom rule. Let's see, this kingdom orientation then has very specific and very practical implications for our lives as followers of Christ. It's going to get into the nitty-gritty of things like food, clothing, uh, material possessions, and so on and so forth. Well, with that context behind us, the, the text today, verses 19 to 24, will neatly divide into three different sections along the lines of the three analogies that it uses. And so those three analogies will be our three main points today in the sermon. A uh, First, in verses 19 to 21, disciples lay up heavenly treasure. Second, verses 22 to 23, disciples have a singular vision. And then the third, disciples serve one master with undivided loyalty, verse 24. Let's look first at verses 19 to 21, and we'll spend most of our time here. A disciple's lay up heavenly treasure. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These verses can be broken down into three main components. Uh, We see first, the command, and then the incentive of durability. And then lastly, uh, we see a lesson about the heart. Uh, Let's look first at the command here. And the main idea that Jesus is trying to impress on his disciples, and therefore on us, brothers and sisters, is that we are to live for things that have eternal value, Rather than those things that only have value in this life, only. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's the command that is given to us. Jesus' words are an appeal to common sense. This is not a hard text to interpret. Some texts you have to do a little bit more work, understanding the grammar, the imagery, and what's going on. I think we all intuitively know what Jesus is trying to teach us right here. It's a bad bargain to exchange the eternal for the temporal. uh, To trade the durable, things that will last, for things that will not last. He's saying his disciples, his followers, should set their hearts and their lives uh, towards those things that will matter and will last in eternity. And I want us to notice that uh, the immediacy of this command and the, the active engagement that this, can, this command would require of us as disciples. We are to stop laying up treasures on earth right now. And we are to begin getting busy with laying up treasures in heaven right now. He is calling his disciples uh, to immediate action. No one ever drifts into godliness. No one ever drifts into kingdom-mindedness or heavenly-mindedness. We must actively engage those things. Jesus commands you and me, brother and sister, just like he commanded the 12 that he is looking at as he is giving the Sermon on the Mount, that we must lay up treasures and be active about laying up treasures and seeking first his kingdom right now. We ought to make this a conscientious commitment of our lives and we ought to think about this talk about this game plan and strategize how we individually or how our families or how corporately we as a whole church family uh, can work towards God's highest glory with the short lives that we have Uh, this is the type of verse that is worthy of being posted in a picture frame on the wall of your house or over your doorway or on uh, the background of your desktop screen or your phone, to put this thought in front of our minds again and again and again. Followers of Christ are to seek first the kingdom of God by laying up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. So that's, that's the thrust of Jesus' message. It's, it's quite plain, right? It's very intuitive to us. let's drill down a little bit further into the text. What are the heavenly tre- or sorry the earthly treasures that we're supposed to forsake and what are the heavenly treasures that we're supposed to seek? See, treasures on earth are anything material or immaterial that we place our value in that have significance in this life only and not in eternity. Treasures on earth are anything material or immaterial that we place our value in that have significance only in this life now and not in eternity. Uh, The immediate language of the analogy uh, seems to obviously draw our minds to material or tangible possessions, things that can be stolen by a thief or things that can erode. Uh, The word that's translated rust kind of means to to be eaten up. Uh, You could think of in an agrarian society, if you've got your store of grain, you can Think about things going in there and eating it up. The idea is that of consumption. Our resources are being consumed. They're, they're eroding. They're corroding together. But I think since Jesus is leveraging analogy an analogy to make a larger point about where we place our values, I do think it's legitimate to apply this to immaterial possessions, uh, to things like finding our worth in someone else's love, Our self esteem, our sense of success in life. Uh, I think those things do fall within the scope of this text here. Here are a few diagnostic questions that could help us assess how tight our grip is on earthly things. Do I have to have this thing in order to be happy? You could itemize things in your life. Do I have to have that thing? in order to be happy. Or to borrow from the language of Job, could I still bless the Lord if he took that thing away? Or to borrow from precisely where Jesus is about to go with this for the rest of chapter six? How anxious does it make me if I do or do not have this thing in my life? If we ask ourselves those questions, brothers and sisters, I could illuminate how tight our grip is on the things of this world. Earthly treasures are manifold. Earthly treasures can look like placing our hope in financial security, physical health. I've spent a decade in the ER watching many people, not all, many people try to place their hope in doctors and in medicine and in extending life one more year, five more years, 10 more years. We can place our hope in a way, in, that, in a way that's so man-centered and man-exalting. Uh, earthly treasures could look like relational security as well. The list could go on with those, the categorical list could go on. Physical security, financial security, relational security. How much of your sense of peace and security in life depends on your bank account or your retirement balance? How often are you scrolling and checking The balance of things financially, rather than knowing that your Heavenly Father knows the numbers of hairs on your head and that He will give you your daily bread. The moth and the rust of an economic recession can quickly erode all of your financial security. Oh, but if you are living as an adopted son of the Heavenly Father, If you know that he cares for you more than the birds of the air or the lilies of the field, and he will clothe you and he will give you your daily bread. Oh, what great security, what great peace that brings to the believer. Another example, and this doesn't apply only to the young, but young people, how much of your sense of worth or value are you placing in your youthful beauty or body image? Is he pursuing vain beauty or the perfect A body image will leave you empty in the end I'll just give you an axiom to live by Uh, when you're thinking about a relationship with someone from the opposite sex you will keep them with what you win them with whatever you win them with is what you're going to keep them with so if you win them only based off of physical externalities physical attraction physical gratification Then that's what you will keep them with and what is going to happen when age comes time passes and youthful beauty fades where will you be how much better if you adorn yourself with godliness and good works and when a godly spouse who prizes those things to the glory of the Lord how much more joyful will your life be having merged together a lives that prioritize, that live for, that the current is flowing towards the glory of the Lord supremely in all of life. Let me suggest uh, another very practical way you can assess how tightly uh, your grip is on earthly treasures uh, before we move on here. Uh, have you guys heard of intermittent fasting? It seems to be all the rage and dieting right now. I don't know if it's going to stick around or not, but that's not the point. I want you to take that idea of intermittent fasting and apply it to earthly things in your life. Things that are not inherently wrong, may even be good if you stewarded to the glory of God, but list the things that you have that could be in this category of earthly treasures, possessions that we have, and then think about maybe for a time doing an intermittent fast from that thing. Maybe you could intermittently fast from checking on your stock investments or your retirement account. Uh, If you think you care too much about social affirmation from other people, maybe you could intermittently fast from social media for a period of time. If you can fast from something, I find that very encouraging. I find that that will likely trend towards meaning that it doesn't have you in its vice grip if you can survive time without it but before we move on to treasures from heaven i do want to make one point of qualification about treasures on earth what is jesus not forbidding in this command what is jesus not forbidding when he commands us not to lay up treasures on earth he is not forbidding owning possessions that he generously gives or providing for your children or your grandchildren, or having life, health, or property insurance, or storing up for a rainy day like the ant in Proverbs, or just simply enjoying God's good gifts that He's given us as a very generous creator in His good world. He's not forbidding any of those things. He is forbidding a man centered and a man exalting materialism that just tethers our hearts to this world and tends to make us hold tightly to temporal things rather than holding them loosely. Let's move on to laying up treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven are things we do on earth that have eternal significance in the kingdom of God. Treasures in heaven are things that we do here on earth that have eternal significance in the kingdom of God. It looks like personally growing in the Beatitudes, if we're going to anchor this in the nearby context. Uh, It looks like personally growing in all the fruits of the Spirit. It looks like boldly and lovingly sharing the good news of Christ with your unbelieving neighbor and caring more about their eternal soul than about their temporal affirmation. It looks like Uh, checking in on your brothers and sisters to see how they're doing in their fight against remaining sin. Bearing the burdens of your brothers and sisters through hard seasons and fulfilling all the one another commands the many others across the New Testament. It looks like prioritizing deep investment in the life of the local church which is the embassy of the eternal kingdom of God present here on earth and also the bride of Christ for whom he gave himself. It looks like carving out time to read your Bible and pray instead of sleeping in or scrolling Instagram in the morning. It looks like going out to a prayer gathering or having people over to your home rather than just having that free night at home alone. It looks like ordering your family schedule with a clear priority given to the best things, eternal things, rather than just good things or okay things. It has been said that the enemy of the best things is the good things. What's competing with the best is usually not the bad, it's usually just the good, the fine. Oh, we ought to be a people, Emmanuel Church, who center our lives and our families on the best things. Are you so busy with good things like soccer practice, dance recital, swim practice, homework, uh, that you are so overbooked and so exhausted that you just don't have anything more to give in your weekly schedule? Too exhausted to ever have your lost neighbors over for a dinner together to get to know them with an angle towards trying to introduce them to the Son of God who can lead them into eternal life? Or are you so overbooked That you have no room to maintain a culture of meaningful membership in the life of the church by meeting up with brothers and sisters midweek to personally encourage them and help them follow Christ. Parents, learn to disciple your children by means of your family schedule. I'm not saying that you have to fill every night with something, I'm not saying that. Don't hear me say that. I am saying that your children are going to learn and others around you, even outside of your family, they're going to learn something from your family schedule, from your regular rhythms and routines together. Let me make one more qualification about treasures in heaven before we move on. Listen to these words from R.T. France. Uh, there, there is a temptation that when we talk about treasures in heaven or reward, uh, we in our sinful humanity can so often make that about us. R.T. France has a good word of rebuke here. In a kingdom in which the first are last and the last first, there is no room for computing one's treasure in heaven on the basis of earthly effort. There's no room for that. I'm just going to let his words stand as they are without adding to it. Let's move on to the last clause in this section. And by the way, this this first point of the sermon will be by far our longest. The last clause of the section says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, Jesus is highlighting a, a link between what we treasure and our hearts. And we need to see that link. Uh, see, Jesus has already displayed his concern for true heart religion in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew 5.8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, bless, uh, Matthew 5.28, Whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is wanting us to see that the externalities of our lives are traced back fundamentally to the state of our heart. He wants us to make that connection and see that what we do is linked to our internal values and affections. But What is the nature of that link? Jesus, that there is a link. What is, what is the nature of that link? How does it flow? What is the dynamic of it? Uh, The clear and overwhelming message of many other texts in the Scripture is that the heart is the source and the cause of our external behaviors. The heart is the source and the cause. It's, It's a fountain that then bubbles up and overflows into our external behaviors. Though that is true, I don't think at all that that's what Jesus is talking about here. He is not trying to get us to draw a line of causality from the heart to what's coming out. Not a line of causality so much as a line of indication. He's wanting us to put these things up here and see, well, if this is here, that indicates this here. The more fundamental lesson he is conveying is that the condition of the heart is inseparable from what it desires, values, or treasures. Where there's thunder, there's lightning is the idea here. Where there's a person whose outward life visibly and clearly treasures Christ's kingdom, there's a pure, there's a a redeemed, there is a saved person. There is a true disciple of Christ. But where there's a person who treasures temporal and material things more than the things of God's kingdom, there's a sinful heart which still worships and serves God. The creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, as Romans 1 tells us. Later on in Matthew, Jesus is going to ask an incisive question that really cuts to the heart of this. At the end of, the, of chapter 16, he's given this great short discourse on discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Christ. He's going to say, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but then forfeits his soul? Or What will a man give in return for his soul? See, the message that Jesus is giving us here, verses 19 to 21, is so intuitive and obvious. How bad of a bargain, how foolish of a choice if we would exchange the the glories of knowing the eternal God through his son and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Well, that's our first main point. Disciples lay up treasures in heaven. Let's look now at verses 22 to 23. Uh, Disciples have a singular vision. Disciples have a singular vision. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, uh, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Uh, For truth in advertising, this is honestly the toughest part of our section of text today to interpret and to understand. But I think it's, having said that, I think it's within our grasp to understand the meaning here. Uh, the folly of preachers whose primary task is to feed the sheep is to linger longer over what is less clear rather than to feed the sheep with what is main and plain. And so for that reason, we're going to linger uh, for less time here. And then also because each of these analogies is building on the original command. And And so there is some redundancy that comes. There's some repetition. Jesus is trying to drive this larger picture home to us. So what comes before and after these verses, verses 22 to 23, is fairly clear and obvious to the common sense. However, the details of the analogy in verse 22 to 23 can be a little bit confusing, how they work. What does it mean that the eye is the lamp of the body? We could kind of get bogged down in the weeds of that. Well, a lamp generates light, but an eye doesn't generate light. I think we're getting off the rails if we start to go in those directions. The text can also be a little bit difficult from a grammatical standpoint, too. There's just a couple of words. It's it's not immediate and obvious how they're being used. Uh, For example, Jesus says, if your eye is healthy. And then he says, if your eye is bad. What does it mean for the eye to be healthy or bad? Uh, so the ESV will read I as healthy. If you have other translations, you'll probably see that word translated quite a few different ways. Usually if you compare translations and you see one word that's translated a number of different ways, I can help you hone in and realize that there might be a little bit of difficulty with that word trying to understand how the Greek original will translate over to an English equivalent Sometimes it's easy, and sometimes it's not so easy to find an English equivalent. Well, this is one of those difficult words that uh, they're trying to piece together here. It says uh, that the original says more, more rigidly if your eye is single, what, what we translated healthy is if your eye is single, think of having a singular focus or a fixed gaze. I think that's the idea that's going on there. And then the word for bad, if your eye is bad, is more commonly translated evil. What does it mean to have an evil eye? Uh, one way to interpret this text, which would work in the context and is a reasonable interpretation, is that an evil eye is a stingy eye. Jesus is talking about our earthly possessions, right? He's talking about money, earthly treasures. You could say evil eye is a stingy eye, or, and a good eye or a single eye is a generous eye. That's a reasonable interpretation. I don't think that is best. I prefer uh, the understanding of the original Greek word as to its more original meaning of single. The eye is singular. It's fixed. Uh, It is focused on something in a unique way that is uh, excluding other things and channeling all of its heart and energy towards the one thing. Well, let me try to summarize and synthesize uh, these verses. The basic contrast that Jesus is laying out for us is between a good eye and a bad eye. Between an eye that's functioning as it should and an eye that's not functioning as it should. And a contrast between darkness and then light. The eye in the scriptures is often equivalent to the heart. It's helpful to remember that. Uh, To Set the heart on something and to fix the eye on something are often used as synonyms. The idea Jesus is commanding here, I believe, is that we are to fix our eyes with single minded devotion and unwavering loyalty to our Heavenly Father's kingdom. We're to be single visioned for the glory of God, fixated in our gaze on His kingdom. Have you ever been at a wedding? One of the sweetest parts of a wedding is to watch the bride and the groom. I I personally always choose to watch the groom for the first part. And just watch his eyes when his bride comes into the room and then they're fixed on each other. It's like the rest of you don't even exist. You just disappear for a time. When we look at God, when we think about the orientation of our lives, our vision for what our lives should be about, it ought to be like that. It ought to be like, the bride and the groom fixed on each other, unwavering in their gaze. Nothing can compete for their attention in that moment. It ought to be like that for us. We should so fix our gaze on Christ and his kingdom that it is clear to all that it's the overwhelming passion of the guiding and driving dynamic of our lives. Let's look at the last phrase of verse 23. Look with me then at If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? There's a warning for us here. Jesus is drawing our attention to the reality of self-deception. There are those who think they are in the light, but are actually walking in darkness. How great and horrifying is the darkness of somebody who doesn't know they're in the darkness? but who thinks that they're actually in the light. Many of us have been there before. I was a self-deceived professing Christian until my mid-teenage years. I was never an atheist. I never jettisoned the idea of a creator and that that creator was the God of the Bible. I just didn't love him. I didn't follow him. I didn't live as a subject of his kingdom. I didn't live and submit myself underneath his authority and told the Lord Through a set of circumstances, opened my eyes up to the fact that I was walking in darkness. Uh, Similarly, my my oldest living brother lived as a self deceived, professing Christian for 20 years. Uh, From his mid teens till his mid 30s, professing that he was a follower of Christ, showing up at church week in and week out, taking communion like we are today. Not intentionally deceiving anyone, actually deceived in himself, thinking he was a Christian but all the while walking in darkness, never submitting to Christ in true repentance and faith, never with this seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the single mentality that I would sell everything to have Jesus, that treasure hidden in a field that wasn't true of him for so long. And then the Lord opened his eyes to the fact that he was walking in darkness. My friend, if you are uh, nominally loyal to Christ or only have a forced or a fake a religiosity, rather than deep and genuine love for God, then you are in the darkness. How great is the darkness of those who think that they're in the light when they are, in fact, in the darkness. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 13, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, talking about the unbelief of the crowds around them, that seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. He says, but to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Oh, the Father gave them something. He opened their eyes. He helped them to hear and to understand and to believe the truth of who Christ was. My friend, if you're in darkness today, ask God to open your eyes, to help you to see him for who he is, of the chief treasure, the only treasure worth having in this life. Let's move on to talk about now our third main point So leaving the singular vision of the disciples, let's look now at verse 24. Disciples serve one master with undivided loyalty. Disciples are to serve one master with undivided loyalty. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and then despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This verse also appeals to the common sense and it's, Intuitively easy to understand. The big idea is that we as followers of Christ are to live with a single, singular and undivided commitment to God as our master. As our creator and our king. Notice the stark either or. A dynamic in which God is calling us to absolute submission. And commitment to him versus anything earthly. Money. The word is mammon. Any material possessions that have value is the idea of man. This this stark either or dynamic needs to come across to us. See the temptation is to take the edge off of Jesus' words by quickly overqualifying them and talking about how, well, every or even true believers have remaining sin in us. And so we're gonna struggle with the love of money a little bit, sometimes as well. We're gonna go back and pet that pet sin, drink from that well again. I don't want to qualify Jesus' statement like that. I want it to maintain its edge and its bite. What he is saying here is that if money is your master in your heart of hearts, then you are not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Your soul is not safe with Christ. It is not well. This text would carry the same sharp edge that uh, 1 Corinthians 6.10 has when it says that the greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. If in your heart of hearts you love and desire money or possessions, material or immaterial, more than Christ and his kingdom, then my friend, you are not safe in Christ. Your heart is entangled with something that will drag you down to hell. If that is you, I want you to hear of the good news from 1 Corinthians 6 that comes right after the warning. There. It says that neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, all these earthly, worldly things. Then verse 11 says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. My friend, God has been waking people up and saving them from the madness of materialism all over the globe today and all throughout history. If that is you, he will gladly accept you into his kingdom. If you realize that the tentacles of the world have have so gripped and entangled my heart, And the tentacles of my heart have been so willingly and happily entangled in the things of the world. If you sense that is, in fact, the governing dynamic of your life, it is chiefly a love for the world rather than a love for the Lord, know that he will gladly accept you into his kingdom. If you would turn to him in repentance and faith and be washed by him, viewing Christ as your chief treasure. There's... Also, a major and an obvious implication for us in this text that I want us to see, and that is that we were made to serve a master. We were made to serve a master. We are not self-existing or self-sustaining beings. We are finite and dependent beings made by the infinite and independent Creator, by Him and for Him. So Jesus or Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six for. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We exist for the glory of God and not vice versa, is what Jesus is telling us right here. We exist for the master that we were made for. My friends, we will only loosen our grips on this world and live fruitful lives to the glory of God when we embrace the truth that we were created for him and not vice versa. Uh, The stuff we have now is not ours anyway. could marshal a lot of other texts from the scriptures. Oh, the Lord owns everything. It's it's the folly of humanity to think that, oh, this is mine. It's earned by me and it's for me. Everything we have is to be stewarded. Oh, Jesus is going to teach some incisive parables, calling his disciples to think about everything they have as to be stewarded for the glory of God supremely we will only find the value of God's good gifts and truly begin to enjoy them when we begin to use them to serve him first and foremost. There is one a final potential question that this, this text could raise. What does Jesus mean when he says no one is able to ter- serve two masters? But Jesus is using the illustration of slavery, a not of modern-day employer where you can have two jobs and kind of have two bosses. That works. It doesn't work to be slaves to two masters. Uh, That's a full-time situation. That's a singular and undivided situation. Uh, Similarly, Jesus is saying that his disciples are to view themselves as servants of God, slaves of God, and that their lives are to be given in undivided service to him. He's not saying that it's impossible for us to sinfully moonlight to backslide to stumble and to dabble into sins into becoming for a time fixated and infatuated with money or other material things in this world rather he is saying that if we do that it will sap our love for him our joy in him and our fruitfulness in his kingdom let me close with these words from First John chapter two, verses 15 to 17, a wonderful and a perfect parallel text to our text this morning. John tells the church, "Do not love the things of the world, the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him." For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, he abides forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please... As your spirit to carry your word to the home, home to the hearts of your people. Help us all to make progress in loosening our grip on this world. Oh Lord, if any of us are truly living for this world as our chief master, please spotlight that. Show us the deceitfulness of our sin. Show us the state of our heart. Show us our desperate need. And show us the mercy and the grace of Christ who would come and give himself for sinners like us. Thank you for the treasure that we have in Christ and in his blood. And as we prepare to come to the table, I pray that you would encourage us by helping us to remember the great treasure that we have in the Son of God shedding his supremely, infinitely valuable blood. His life. For those of us who've willingly forfeited it. Who madly, foolishly forfeited it for things that have no durability, for things that will not matter in eternity. or thank you for your mercy. Encourage us as we come to remember Christ's death. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.